Hey everybody, thanks so much for tuning in. I appreciate it. If you're new here, welcome, welcome, welcome. I'm so happy you found my channel. If you've been here for a while, thank you so much for all your love and support. I love that you guys keep coming back and I really just, I really can't thank you enough. Last week, I redid the first video that I ever did. I legit deleted that video off my social media. It was, it was terrible, it was cringy. So, so that video's gone. And this is the second video that I ever did. I thought it deserved a lot more justice because this guy is probably the most important Mafia member ever, and it deserved a lot more information, a lot more background than I had originally given it the first time. This is going to be a really long video because I'm probably going to go over everything I went over in the first video, and then I'm also going to involve everything that I learned along the way. So I apologize, I usually try to keep these videos under an hour. This one's definitely going to go beyond that. So I hope you enjoy. I hope you find this information interesting and fun, and I hope you enjoy hanging out today. Charles Lucky Luciano was born in Sicily, Italy on November 24th, 1897. His parents, Antonio Lucania and Rosalia Caparelli, had five children together. His birth name was Salvatore Lucania, but his family changed their surname to Luciano when they came to the United States, and they came over when Charles was 10 years old. So he changed his whole name. He changed from Salvatore to Charles, and he changed from Lucania to Luciano as soon as he came to America when he was 10. Antonio was a sulfur pit worker and his mother was a stay-at-home mom. That left the entire family very, very poor. But his father was extremely proud, probably a little too proud. He refused to ever ask anybody for any kind of charity or money, even when they weren't able to pay their bills. Luciano's mom would go to Antonio's cousin Rotolo and she would let him know that they were having a really hard time financially and Rotolo would secretly give her money and she would just randomly pop up with the money. She probably lied and said she sold something. I don't know how she justified coming home with stacks of money, but she did and that's how they kind of got through the hardest times. His father kept a calendar from a passenger ship company under his bed and with this calendar he kept a jar where he would stash away money and it was all just for this dream of one day making the trip to America. Antonio and Rosalia had five children together. Bartholomew in 1890, Charles or Salvatore in 1897, Giuseppe in 1898, Filippa in 1901, and Concetta. I can't find the year that Concetta was born. I can't really find anything about her. She must have been born after 1907 because when the family immigrated to America, both Salvatore's parents brought him and three of his siblings, not four, with them on their trek to America. So they must have had Concetta while they were in America. I'm not really sure why I'm not able to find anything about her or when she was born, but I do kind of assume that she just was born after they got to America. They, like most other Italian immigrants at the time, came to America seeking a better life. They were having a very hard time back in Italy, and America was where you could have your dreams come true, you could make a better life for your family, so they headed to America and they finally were able to make it. They they 
settled in the Lower East Side of Manhattan, a popular place for immigrating Italians to settle, and that's where present-day Little Italy is. Most of the population was Italian. Everybody that came over, they either landed in New Orleans or in New York. So it was very similar for them to get off of the boat and either not have enough money because they just spent all their money on the trip, or not really have any idea where in America to go, so they ended up just settling in New York where they came into the country. In 1906, when Luciano was 10 years old, he had already been involved in a mugging and shoplifting and extortion back in Italy. He was arrested at 10 years old for shoplifting. His parents were absolutely mortified, but he legit, like, he did not care at all. He was going to public school 19 in Manhattan, and he finished grade 6 before dropping out at the age of 14 and the school kind of forced his parents to take him out of school. They said, you know, he could either drop out or we can kick him out, but I'm sure that he would rather it look like he just dropped out because he just got into too much trouble. He didn't care about any kind of authority. He was just a wild child. He got a job on the street selling hats, but he left that job when he won over $200 playing dice and he started committing criminal acts because he had this $200 that he could invest and just kind of turn it over. His parents were really worried about him and they sent him to the Brooklyn Truant School that year. But that didn't last very long either. He definitely didn't graduate from high school. I don't see exactly when he dropped out of the Brooklyn Truant School, but he did not make it very long there. In 1916, he served his first jail sentence. He did six months for dealing heroin. Luciano had already started his own street gang in the early 1910s and this street gang was there to protect the Jewish kids in the neighborhood from the Italian and Irish gangs, and they charged 10 cents a week. This really set them apart from the other gangs in the area because a lot of the gangs in the area, they protected their own people. Nobody was protecting the Jewish kids, and they kind of saw an opening there where the Irish and the Italians, they, would, they were willing to go up against their own people to protect these guys. While he was in this street gang, he met one of his lifelong friends, Meyer Lansky. His gang tried to scare Lansky into paying for their protection, and Meyer kind of laughed in their face. Even though Luciano was this, you know, big, bad, tough guy, Meyer laughing at him, it really made Luciano admire him. He really liked the bravado that Meyer showed when he laughed in his face. So he ended up becoming friends with him, and their friendship lasted literally both of their entire lives. On January 17th, 1920, the 18th Amendment took effect and prohibition started in America, making the manufacture, sale, and transportation of alcoholic beverages prohibited. Absolutely the dumbest law America has ever had, probably right there alongside marijuana being illegal. It's just stupid, but they did it for a while, so criminals saw this as like a huge opportunity opportunity and they all started black market trade around alcohol sales because everybody in America still wanted alcohol. You can't tell these men that have been drinking their entire lives that they're just all of a sudden never allowed to have it again. It's the same thing with drugs, you know, heroin is illegal, but how many people a day overdose and die off of heroin? People are going to find a way to get what they want. And since
once people viewed alcohol as this thing that America was just being ridiculous while they were making it illegal, they they kind of viewed it as just, this is the stupidest thing I've ever seen in my life. So normal everyday people, these guys probably wouldn't feel comfortable going out and, you know, shooting somebody or pulling heavy crimes. They did feel comfortable going out and breaking the law in order to buy and sell alcohol. And that really just enabled the mafia to kind of spread their reach because you got these guys that had never committed crimes and they view bootlegging and they view drinking as not so much as a crime, but this is where your criminal record can start off. And a lot of people got into the mafia. The mafia grew exponentially during Prohibition because not only do you have this law that all of America views as just dumb, on top of that, you have very little money to cover the the cops that are coming in and policing and trying to actually uphold this law. Like, that is not something that can really happen. It was just an absolute mess. World War One at this time is going on, and a lot of the people that you are around are either in World War One or just coming back. They have, I think it was called shell shock back then, but most people that came back from the war, they had, they had killed people. And a lot of the guys came back kind of messed up. That opened a lot of guys to drinking away their problems, and that kind of just made the public even more seek alcohol. Now, while World War One is going on and all of these guys are coming back from World War One or leaving for the war, Luciano is back in New York and he's learning the tricks of the trade and he's getting into prostitution pimping, he's getting into bootlegging, dealing drugs, everything criminal Luciano is getting into. He got his nickname Lucky when he was arrested over and over and over again and other than that six-month stint that he did for dealing heroin, he really never got charged. He was very lucky when it came to getting away with stuff. And we know more than likely that's probably because he was paying people off, he was paying off jurors, he was paying off judges and lawyers, and he was paying everybody off to make sure that he stayed out of jail. In 1920, Joe Masseria, a gang boss in Lower Manhattan, had hired Luciano as one of his gunmen. Luciano was in the Five Points gang by this point, and he had formed a pretty close relationship with Vito Genovese, who was a fellow member of the gang in Five Points gang, and he had also become pretty good friends with Frank Costello, who was also in this gang. The three of them together started working for Arnold the Brain Rothstein, who was a very, very wealthy gambler. He financed bootlegging. He was a very good person to know. He was the one, if you were in trouble, Rothstein was the one that you went to to kind of smooth things over. He knew everybody. He was able to pull anything off, and he was just a very powerful person in New York. Rothstein was a Jewish mob kingpin, and he had really deep roots in corruption in professional athletics. Something that you wouldn't really expect. He did a lot of fixed games, stuff like that. He was the one who conspired to fix the 1919 World Series, the one where Gotti was yelling about when the juror was excused from the trial in, in his case where they were coming after him for all the murders. Rothstein is known for turning the underground into an actual empire. He switched them around from just, you know, a guy, a bunch of guys that played dice and pulled robberies, and he kind of turned it into men that wore expensive suits and had talks over golf. He just kind of steered the underground into the 
area that the white collar industry was currently working. Rothstein was the professional gambler that was the basis for Meyer Wolfsheim in F. Scott Fitzgerald's The Great Gatsby. He had built his reputation through gambling and he used his business acumen to kind of teach these up and coming gangs like Lucky Luciano and Meyer Lansky and teach them how to be refined criminals instead of just these guys that are going out and killing people and robbing places and just doing hoodlum things. He turned them into professionals. In the late 1920s, Rothstein branched out from gambling and bootlegging, and he started to move into narcotics. Rothstein mentored Luciano on many things, and one of the most important things that he would teach him about was how to move around in high society. He introduced him to a life of luxury. He had elevated him from a street gangster playing dice in the corner to somebody that's bootlegging alcohol to high society members. During Prohibition, Luciano was known as a gentleman bootlegger. And him and Joe Adonis and Frank Costello, they were bootlegging to the people on Broadway, the the more important crowd. So they were they were moving alcohol not to just, you know, some tavern in the middle of nowhere, but the the viewer, the rich people that came to watch Broadway shows and all of that kind of stuff. That's what Lucky Luciano started to get into rather than just the low level crimes that he was into before he started working for Arnold Rothstein. When I say that Arnold Rothstein fixed the 1919 World Series, there's a lot that goes into that. There's a lot of facts both for and against Rothstein actually fixing the 1919 World Series. Nobody is actually 100% sure whether he did it or not. He was never formally charged for it, but it's pretty widely accepted that he did do it. Let's go through a few facts and you guys tell me in the comments what you think. Did he do it? Did he not do it? I don't know. So you tell me. In 1919, According to allegations, Rothstein paid members at the Chicago White Sox to lose the World Series to the Cincinnati Reds. He bet huge on the Reds, and he really made a lot of money off of that game. This event overall came to be known as the Black Sox scandal. He was called to testify in front of a grand jury regarding the scandal because obviously they want to figure out what happened. He claimed that he was innocent. He said he had absolutely nothing to do with it. He was just an everyday, ordinary businessman that was getting dragged through the mud. The evidence they had against him was not enough to formally charge him. And pretty much he's saying that they're just lodging a smear campaign against him. And the entire thing is unfair. Abe Attell, or as the newspapers called him, the little Hebrew, was a professional boxer. He had a pretty impressive resume. He was holding the World Featherweight Championship belt for six years between 1906 and 1912. So that's a pretty long time to hold a belt. He was pretty short at only five foot four inches and he only had a 66 inch reach so it's kind of surprising that he had so much success in boxing. That was one of the problems that Nicky Scarfo had. He had tried to go into professional boxing but he was just too short so he couldn't make it so I'm surprised to hear that he got that successful with that height. Attell was friends with Rothstein and he was also a co-defendant in the court of public opinion in the Black Sox scandal. 
Attell couldn't have been that close to Rothstein, though, because when Rothstein testified in front of the grand jury, this is his exact testimony. The whole thing started when Abe Attell and some other cheap gamblers decided to frame the series and make a killing. The world knows I was asked in on the deal, and my friends know how I turned them down flat. I don't doubt that Attell used my name to put it over. That's been done by smarter men than Abe, but I was not in on it, would not have gone into it under any circumstances and did not bet a cent on the series after what I found out was underway. In another version of events by David Pietruza, a writer who wrote a biography on Rothstein, Rothstein was first approached by Joseph Sport Sullivan, a gambler who suggested that Rothstein found it worth it to participate in the fixing of the series, but he suggests that Rothstein found it worth it to participate in fixing the series with the competition to fix the game. It made the risk of getting involved worth it, and he believed that he'd still be able to cover himself. He'd be able to cover his tracks, and they wouldn't be able to legally connect him with the scheme, and he just wouldn't get in trouble. He thought it was worth it, according to Pietruza. In Pietruza's viewpoint, he concludes that Attell probably fixed the series without Rothstein's approval. Even though he's saying that Rothstein didn't participate, he still went ahead and bet for the Cincinnati Reds, knowing that the fix was in. Initially, the odds for the game were 5-1 to one in favor of the Chicago White Sox, but somebody in the scheme had a big mouth, and rumors quickly started to fly that this game was actually fixed. With these rumors gaining more and more traction, the odds actually flipped and went to 8-5 to five in favor of the Cincinnati Reds. An article from Kevin P. Briggs said that this isn't true, though he said that it didn't appear that, other than at O'Leary's handbook, the odds had even changed at all from the opening after the White Sox from opening until the White Sox lost game one and it didn't really change that dramatically either way until after Chicago also lost game two. He also says that it does not appear that hundreds of people knew that the World Series was fixed. He says that it kind of became apparent after how badly the White Sox were losing but he said that they did not know ahead of time and somebody easily could have made a bet beforehand with favorable odds. He also says that the World Series was fixed. There's no mistake about it. There's no question about it. The 1919 World Series was absolutely fixed. Leo Ketcher, a crime reporter, screenwriter, author, crime writer, and was also a West Coast correspondent to the New York Post, said that all the records and minutes of the grand jury disappeared. So too did the signed confessions of Chicote, Williams, and Jackson. The state, virtually all its evidence gone, sought to get the players to repeat their confessions on the stand. This, they absolutely refused to do. And they kind of came up and said, no, I plead the fifth leave me alone. Eventually, the judge had no choice but to dismiss the case. He also went on to say that Arnold Rothstein had absolutely nothing to do with fixing the series, and he kind of, like, apologized, saying, like, I'm sorry, I shouldn't have come so hard after him, and he really won a very small sum, so there's no way he did this because he would have won a lot more money if he did. All eight players from the White Sox that they thought was involved in the scandal were permanently and forever 
banned from the game of baseball. Rothstein always said that he won less than $100,000, but it was actually somewhere around $350,000 that he won from the World Series. It absolutely could have been a lot more, but I think he had a feeling that this was gonna happen. He knew that this was the World Series. Like, you can't just get away with that. So he knew not to go all in. It wasn't because he chickened out. He just knew that a World Series fix was too good to be true, even if it was true. $350,000 in 1919 would have the purchasing power of about $5.7 million today. So it was a huge windfall. In The Great Gatsby, when Nick Carraway asked Jay Gatsby, referring to Mr. Rothstein, why isn't he in jail? Gatsby responded, they can't get him, old sport. He's a smart man. In Eight Men Out, Asniff wrote that Rothstein was referred to as a sportsman by the newspaper, as a professional gambler by the Broadway crowd, and as a hoodlum by his father. Luciano's public image among his high-class friends was seriously, seriously damaged when he was arrested for selling heroin in 1923. He didn't get any jail time, but he was now being viewed as a drug dealer, and that's a serious step down from the high society associates he had been running with, so now he's being looked at as, like, this hoodlum standing on the corner selling dope, and it's a really bad thing that he got arrested. Luciano is many things, but he was no fool. He knew he had to do something really big to fix this problem. With a big boxing match coming up between Jack Dempsey and Louis Furpo in the Bronx, he saw a huge opportunity. Given the income that he was making, and also given the huge loss of income that would come if high society started to look down on him, Luciano purchased 200 tickets to the fight and handed them out to the top gangsters and politicians in New York. So everybody got a ticket to this boxing match for free. Before this boxing match, Rothstein brought Luciano on like a huge shopping spree at Wanamaker's department store to buy really expensive clothes to impress the uber rich people that were going to be at this boxing match. The play seemed to be pretty successful and Luciano continued to grow his empire. By 1925, he had an annual income of $4 million a year, which would be about $64 million by today's standards. Luciano at this point is working for Rothstein and Messaria at the same time. He quickly rose through the ranks and became a top aide in Messaria's criminal organization. And Masseria, or Messaria, however, I, I'm just going to pronounce it Masseria. Masseria, he's a really big name in New York crime. So to be his second in command and rising through the ranks, being a top aide in Masseria's criminal organization, it's a huge thing for Luciano. Rothstein participated in a three day long high stakes poker game and he ended up owing $320,000 after this poker game. He claimed that the game was fixed and he was like, absolutely not, no way, no how, I am not paying this. The game was fixed, you're trying to rob me, I'm not paying shit. On November 4th, 1928, during a business meeting at the Manhattan's Park Central Hotel, George Hump McManus shot Rothstein. He was rushed to the hospital, but he succumbed to his injuries three days later and he died on November 7th, 1928. The ironic part of Rothstein's death is that he currently had an open bet for $500,000 that Herbert Hoover would be elected as president the next day. If he lived to see November 8th when the presidential election took place, he would have had more than enough money to pay off McManus. McManus was indicted, but he was later acquitted of the murder. After Rothstein died, Luciano started to work full-time for Masseria. On October 16th, 1929, Luciano was at a local dock in New York. He was there to inspect a load of 
heroin that had been smuggled into Manhattan on the Hudson River. He was jumped by three men at gunpoint and shoved into a limo. He was handcuffed and his mouth was taped shut and he was driven to Brooklyn. In Brooklyn, he was strung up by his arms above his head to a support beam in the ceiling and he was beaten with fists, blackjacks, pistol butts, everything you could imagine until he passed out. In a move to finish him off, one of the assailants used a long-bladed knife to slash his cheek, ear, and throat while another stabbed him in the back 12 times with an ice pick. So pretty much he was cut on his throat, ear, and there. Assuming he was dead, obviously he had been stabbed 12 times, he was unconscious, he, he was just in bad shape. They assumed he was dead. They drove him to Huguenot Beach on Staten Island and dumped his body. The slash on his throat had just, just barely missed his jugular vein, and none of the ice pick stabs actually hit any vital organs. This absolute monster of a man gets up, gets himself together, and aimlessly walks down a deserted road until a cop named Blank found him. And when it was kind of like one of those scenes out of a movie, as soon as he saw the cop, he just passed out. You know, you kind of think that doesn't happen in real life. But I could see if you're in a mission for your life to find somebody and then finally, thank God, you find somebody, you just succumb to your injuries because you know, especially with a cop, that you're in good hands now. While he's in the hospital recuperating, the New York detectives, of course, do what New York detectives do. They use the time to harass him for hours upon hours and they're looking for the identity of who tried to kill him. Anybody that knows anything about the Mafia knows that one rule is held higher above all else. Omerta, never snitch, shut the F up, take care of your own stuff. They don't use cops, they don't want cops. So they could ask him all day and night until they were blue in the face, they were never gonna get a word out of Luciano. Luciano just continued to tell them he doesn't know anything, he doesn't know who did it, and he doesn't understand why anybody wouldn't like him. Obviously he knows who did it, but he's just not telling the cops. Throughout the years, there's been a lot of theories as to who actually carried out this attack. A few of them came from Luciano himself. Luciano said at one point that it was the cops that kidnapped him, and he said that they wanted information on his friend Jack Legs Diamond. He told a lot of really different versions of the story depending on who he was talking to, what situation he was in, but this version is the one that stayed the most consistent throughout the years. He even went as far as saying that he planned to get revenge on the cops that had attacked him, and he had a whole scheme planned out where he was going to get these cops back, but the cops came for him first, and he just barely got away, so he backtracked and he just cut his losses and stopped looking for revenge. Another theory was that it was Maranzano that had kidnapped him and tried to convince him to come onto his side in the Castellamarisi War. This theory says that Luciano just kind of pissed Maranzano off when he refused to see things his way, so Maranzano either killed him or had him killed. Nobody ever planned on him living through this. He was stabbed 12 times. 12 times. When he would tell people that it was Maranzano, he would give, like, really gory details. He said that he was strung up by his thumbs and beaten and his throat was cut and he was left dangling with his throat cut, bleeding like a pig, and he just gave really, really, really graphic, violent details of the attack when he would 
would talk about how Maranzano did it. This one's a little hard for me to believe because Luciano eventually does go on to team up with Maranzano, and I don't know about you, but if I spent the rest of my life with a droopy eye and a slash across my throat, I'd never want to work with the guy again. So, I mean, I get it, the mafia kind of gets over stuff like that, but I don't see this being something that you could just get over and work with the person again. I don't see it, so I don't think that this theory is true. I think it's probably the cops. It was probably the cops that did it. I saw one theory from a man named Sid Fetter, and I'm gonna botch the shit out of this name. Joaquim Jostin? Jostin? I'm not sure. Who wrote the Luciano story, and they claimed that Luciano tried to rape a girl, and her father beat the ever-loving shit out of Luciano because he tried to rape his daughter. I don't believe that one either. Everybody in the world knew who Luciano was, and I feel like next to nobody would have the balls to go up against him, even way back then. Even if you're protecting your daughter, that's that man was important. I don't see anybody having the balls to do that. But this theory did take off, and it kind of got a life of its own, and people started to pass around rumors, and the theories ranged from, like, a simple date gone wrong with the wrong girl, and then there was, like, a rape, then there was a pregnancy. So this kind of took on a life of its own, but none of that ever came from Luciano. That came from these two dudes who wrote the Luciano story and didn't really know anything. If you watch Boardwalk Empire, I'm only on season one, so please, please, please do not put any spoilers in the comments because I read all my comments. I respond to most of my comments. If you put spoilers, I'm going to read them, so I beg you not to. Please don't. Apparently, Luciano shows up with a scar and a droopy eye in the last season. I guess this is, like, supposed to depict Luciano having been assaulted at that time. There's a few different things in that series that don't exactly line up chronologically, and that's kind of forgivable because, you know, they want to get all the important information into the show, but it's not like they're skipping around years, so I, I get it. I get why they just kind of put things where they put them, and they don't exactly line up with what actually happened. I'm seriously in love with this show, though. I think I started watching it because one of you guys on YouTube suggested it, and I just had never watched it because I didn't know what it was about. I totally, like, I tried to watch it, but way back in the day I had tried to watch it, and I'm not really into, like, those old-timey shows or movies or anything, and I think I just looked at it like, it was like, you know, I don't know. I didn't, I didn't know it was Lucky Luciano and, and all of them, so I never really just, I never got interested, so. I'm watching it now. I'm absolutely obsessed with it. No spoilers. Luciano had these scars until the day he died, obviously, and there was huge scars on his cheek and on his throat, and he also had a lazy eye that he had inherited by being beaten on his cheekbone so severely. I kind of relate to that. I don't know if you guys have ever noticed, but the left side of my face is kind of messed up. Um, my eye droops a little bit. I've had a few people talk about the way that my mouth moves when I talk. Um, I got injured pretty badly on the left side of my face, and that's why it looks like that. Um, never something I ever planned on talking about on this channel, and I'm not even going to now, but, um, yeah, if you get hit hard enough on the side of your face, it does have, you know, it'll, like, if you look at my eye, it doesn't really look the same as the other eye. Um, a lot of times this side of my mouth doesn't really move the same as the right side, so, yeah, it happens. The actual identity of the guys who tried to kill him have never actually been confirmed. He never officially confirmed what happened. I've been saying on the last few videos that I've done that I'm not gonna go into detail about the Castello 
Stella Marisi wore because I've talked about it so many times on this channel and I don't want it to become repetitive. But this is a redo of my second ever episode so I do feel like I should go back into it, go back through it and just kind of refresh just in case people haven't watched my really old videos. Um, so I'm gonna go through it. What I'm gonna do is I'm gonna put the time right here 55, that this 44. segment is over. If you don't want to hear about the Casella Marisi war, I totally understand. I've gone over it so many times. So if you've watched all my videos, I totally get if you want to fast forward through that. For my podcast listeners, I'll put a voiceover with the time that you can fast forward to if you want to skip this whole part. But I am going to go back over it now. Joe Masseria was the boss of all bosses, running all criminal enterprises and operations within the United States underground. He had been for a really long time. So far back that he actually had a pretty strong reputation for his part in the Mafia Camorra War. I talked a lot about the Mafia Camorra War in the Geosu Gallucci video, so if you are kind of interested in the intricacies of the Mafia Camorra War, you can go to that episode. That's one I'm not going to go through here, but Masseria had been in power so long that he was actually a pretty vital component of the Mafia Camorra War. Don Vito Ferro, a powerful Sicilian mafioso from Castella Mare del Golfo, wanted to control the mafia operations in America, so he sent one of his soldiers, Salvatore Maranzano, to the United States to kind of seize control and take over the underground within the United States. Obviously, the first place that Maranzano heads is to New York because he knows that this is where Masseria is operating, this is where most of the mafia is. There's some stuff going on in New Orleans, but for the most part, the mafia is most present in New York. So that's where Maranzano heads. Almost as soon as Maranzano got to America to enact this plan for Don Vito Ferro, Ferro was thrown in jail back in Italy. Ferro being thrown in jail in Italy, though, it didn't really have too much of an effect on Maranzano. Maranzano was like, I right, cool, I'm not working for Ferro anymore, but I'm already here. I already know what Ferro wants to do, so I'm gonna go ahead and do it myself. I don't care. I don't need a boss. So Maranzano did that, and he kind of became a boss himself. One of Masseria's lieutenants, Gaetano Reina, left Masseria's operation and he went to work for Maranzano. Masseria sent Luciano to have Reina killed for his crime of switching sides, which is just absolutely ridiculous. Reina was killed on February 26, 1930. This murder is kind of the match that stoked the flame that was the Castella Marisi War, and the Castella Marisi War breaks out and raged from February of 1930 to April of 1931 in New York, which really doesn't seem like that long of a time, but when you have so many people dying and you're literally at war, people are dying on the streets of New York, it's a long time. This is a long war. The entire mafia is involved, so it's not like it's just, you know, a war within one of the five families. This is the entire mafia that's at war right now. So it's a big deal. This is a very big deal at the time. It's in the newspapers. Everybody knows what's going on. So it's definitely not just like, oh, it only lasted from February of 19. It only lasted a little bit over a year. Yeah, it was only a little bit over a year, but a lot of people died. 
a lot of people were affected by it. The big hitters on Masseria's side were Lucky Luciano, Albert Anastasia, Vito Genovese, Alfredo Minio, Willie Moretti, Joe Adonis, Frank Costello. So like all the guys that you would see kind of take over in the future. These guys are kind of based in the Camorra region. A lot of these guys are not from Sicily. They're from like Northern Italy, Naples, stuff like that. And then you got Maranzano's side who has like Joseph Joey Bananas Bonanno, Stefano Magadino, who's known as the Undertaker, Joe Perfacci, Joe Aiello. He has a lot of other people on his side. And most of those guys are from Sicily or even Castella Mer del Golfo like he was. Joseph Bonanno actually wrote an autobiography and I swear to God, the entire first half of that book is a straight up love poem to Maranzano. If you're interested in learning about Maranzano, Bonanno's book is a pretty good place to look, especially since Maranzano is such a elusive person. Like, they literally to this day have never found a confirmed picture of this man. Nobody has ever seen a picture of him except him laying dead when he was assassinated. Even though all the way in 2022, if you Google it, you'll see people still saying online that this picture is him and that picture is him. None of those pictures have ever been verified to be Maranzano and most of the pictures that people still claim are him have actually been identified as other people that were in the era in the mafia at the time. So if you see a picture and it's like, yeah, this is Maranzano. No, it's not. They're not lying. They're just misinformed and they didn't do any research to figure out that it really just is not. They There is no verified pictures of Maranzano. Both Maranzano and Masseria, even though they're enemies, they hate each other, they have very huge differences in the way that they think, the way they, everything about them, they were known as Mustache Pete's. Mustache Pete's was kind of like a slang insult to somebody, and it was the old world gangsters that kind of followed the Sicilian Mafia's rules. This group assumed that anybody that wasn't Italian was absolutely not to be trusted, and they adhered to a lot of really strict guidelines, such as not dealing drugs of any kind. So they were just the mustache peats are like the older crowd. Figure it that way. You know, the silver foxes, whatever. The mustache peats. That's what they were called. The younger generation of gangsters that were coming up, such as like, you know, Luciano, Genovese, Castello, all of them, they did not believe in these traditions whatsoever. They really enjoyed the benefits that came from working with the Jewish and the Irish mafia, and they loved making the profit that working with those guys came with. The mustache peats even had a problem with Frank Costello because he wasn't from Sicily. He was from Italy, but he wasn't from Sicily, which meant he wasn't to be trusted. Now, since I did this video, which was the second video that I ever made, I've since then done a video about Gio Sugalucci. This kind of shed some light on why the Mustache Peets didn't trust anybody if they weren't from Sicily. They could be from Italy, but if they weren't from Sicily specifically, the Mustache Peets didn't trust them. That was kind of wild to me when I made my first video, but after I did a lot of research on Giosu Galucci, it made a lot more sense. A lot of the OGs at the time, they had lived through the Mafia Camorra War, and this was set off by Galucci's murder, and it lasted from 1915 to 1917. That war was between the Morello family, a Sicilian faction, and they were against gangs from Naples and the surrounding Campania region, and they were referred to as the Camorra. In the Mafia Camorra War, the Camorra absolutely got decimated. They were done, like wiped off the mat, gone.
and Marillo's dudes ended up walking out on top. The Sicilians walked out on top, which led the Sicilian Mafia to be the one that kind of was reigning supreme at the time, and that's what's going on when all of this is popping off. So that is kind of why the Mustache Pete's had a problem, and they didn't trust Costello, because Costello wasn't from Sicily, he was from northern Italy. He was born in Laropoli, in a province of Casenza, in the Calabria region of Italy. The younger generation of gangsters started to team up together. So the Castello Marisi War really is Masseria versus Maranzano. But a war started breaking out within that war. So now you got the younger generation that they want to work with people that are in Italian. They want to work with the Jewish Mafia, the Irish Mafia, the African American gangs. They want to work with all of those people. So they start to team up together and they come to be known as the Young Turks. So while the Castello Marisi War technically is Masseria's faction against Maranzano's faction, within that that fight, it started to become the Young Turks versus the Mustache Peets. And there was people in the Young Turks that were from both sides of the war. So even though they were at war with each other, they were actually together in this faction of Young Turks who just didn't want to see a war. They thought that this was ridiculous. They hated that people were dying. Their business was on hold. The older generation, they really worried a lot more about power than they did profits. And that's a huge difference from the younger generation because the younger generation really just wanted to get rich. They really didn't care that much about power and, you know, all of that stuff. They just wanted wealth. So they really hated the Casella Marisi War because it just meant a halt to all of their income. It was bad for business. Members of the Young Turks included Luciano, Castello, Genovese, Albert Anastasia, Joe Adonis. Joe Bonanno wasn't in the Young Turks, but he was kind of like an ally because he was, he was, he grew up in Italy, even though he was their age. He wasn't really, his viewpoints didn't line up with the Young Turks. He he also was young, but his values aligned with the Mustache Peets. He was very old world thinking and believed in the Sicilian Mafia's viewpoints of everything. So he was an ally, but he wasn't like officially in the Young Turks. Carlo Gambino, Joe Perfacci, Tommy Gagliano, and Tommy Lucchese were all also in the Young Turks. Luciano made his wishes very clear from the very start. He said that he wanted a national crime syndicate and it's just kind of have people all over America and gangsters from every background to pull their resources and just work together to make profits, make crimes happen. And he really just, he kind of dreamed of a government-like structure and he wanted all the gangsters on all levels to assist everybody together and just kind of be like a government and all work together to accomplish crimes and get any missions done and work out any problems that would work against making profit and work together to make profit. In the beginning of 1931, it became pretty clear that Masseria was losing the Castella Marisi War. His side had suffered a lot more losses and members of his organization began to question his ability to lead in like modern times. He had a lot of really strict adherence to old world traditions and now you got Luciano running around preaching about how the mafia needs to revolutionize. So a lot of people hopped on that train and not really very many people thought that Masseria could continue into the new age. The Young Turks wanted to end the war as quickly as possible and they recognized that the conflict and the bloodshed, it was absolutely unnecessary. It cost a lot of valuable time, profit, personnel. It was just dumb. It was for no reason. They wanted to modernize and revolutionize the mafia and that would lead to a much wider net being cast as, as far as followers go. 
Many gangsters who hadn't conformed to Masseria's rules, they started to follow Luciano because they didn't like these things about Masseria. And then Luciano comes around and he's like, hey, I don't plan on doing things that way. So people are like, I bet. Awesome. We love these ideas. We're going to start to follow Luciano. That led to a lot of gangsters switching sides or the opposite sides uniting under the Young Turks. And regardless of Masseria, Maranzano factions they fell under, they all just kind of became one big group that followed Luciano. Gaetano Reina, the soldier that had switched sides and was murdered, he belonged to a much larger family who switched sides once Gaetano was murdered. This family switching sides, as well as a lot of other gangs in the family, they were defecting to Maranzano's side. It became really clear that the tides were turning and the two biggest hitters in Masseria's side, Luciano and Genovese, they started communication with Maranzano. Reina's side, who would later become the Lucchese family, came back and killed Giuseppe Morello. Morello was once the head of the family that Masseria was leading and he was currently the consigliere when he was killed. So he was a big wig. He kind of invented that family. It was literally called the Morello family. Morello gang, whatever. Masseria sent Vito Genovese to complete this job of killing Morello. And Joseph Pinzolo took over as the leader of the family after he died. Two weeks later, Joseph Pinzolo was killed as well. Joe Aiello was the next to fall to Masseria's order. And Maranzano came back and he killed Manfredi Minio, the head of Masseria's closest ally family. Masseria caught wind that Luciano was really unhappy in his family and with the ongoing war and was starting to turn against him. He went to Joe Adonis, who was one of his top lieutenants, and he ordered Adonis to kill Luciano. What Masseria wasn't really clear on, though, was the really strong relationship that Joe Adonis and Luciano had together. He just didn't know. He also didn't know that Adonis and Luciano were in the Young Turks together. He didn't even know that the Young Turks existed, so he didn't know that Adonis was already planning to overthrow Masseria's entire generation, so he had no idea what he was doing. When Masseria went to Adonis and ordered him to kill Luciano, Adonis was like, yeah, okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's gonna happen. And he went straight to Luciano and was like, bro, Masseria wants you dead. Let's do something. So obviously now Luciano has to do something about Masseria. He can't just keep dragging his feet because now he knows Masseria is trying to have him killed. A deal was struck between Luciano, Genovese, and Maranzano where Luciano and Genovese would betray Masseria and it would end the war immediately and Luciano would become Maranzano's second in command in the post-Massaria, post-Castellamarisi war mafia. On April 15th, 1931, Masseria was killed at Nueva Villa Tomorrow, a restaurant in Coney Island, Brooklyn. Anastasia Genovese, Joe Adonis, and Benjamin Bugsy Siegel were the shooters. Cairo Terranova was supposed to be the getaway driver but he kind of had a little panic attack and Bugsy Siegel had to kind of kick him out of the driver's seat so that they could drive away and get away from the murder. Nobody was ever officially charged with Masseria's murder. The group of the Young Turks had worked with Maranzano to betray Masseria because Maranzano was a lot more forward-thinking than Masseria was. Masseria barely spoke English and he had gone through the Mafia Camorra War, which left him extremely prejudiced against anybody that wasn't 
from his specific part of Italy. Even more so against Jewish, Irish, African-American gangsters that Lucky Luciano and Meyer Lansky had seen so much profit from partnering with. It also didn't help that Luciano knew Masseria had ordered a hit on him, so there really was no other choice. Masseria had to go. It didn't take long for Maranzano to piss off the Young Turks. Luciano started to feel like Maranzano was even more greedy and more manipulative than Masseria ever was. He was mentally unstable and he had created a kill list, which included every major mafioso on it and Luciano was at the top of the list. Maranzano decided that the only way to start another war like the Castella Marisi war was to get rid of Luciano and Genovese. He knew that killing them would also mean that he'd have to kill Al Capone, Frank Costello, Joe Adonis, Dutch Schultz, like Willie Moretti, all of these really big names within the mafia would all have to be killed because they would all come after Maranzano for revenge for killing Luciano. Maranzano hired an Irish hitman named Vincent Call to kill Luciano. He paid him $25,000 and there was an agreement to pay him an additional $25,000 once Luciano was dead. Vincent Call was known as a mad dog. One time he tried to kidnap a lieutenant of Dutch Schultz, one of Luciano's friends and a member of Maranzano's kill list. He completely botched the kidnapping and he ended up killing a kid and he wounded a whole bunch of other civilians who were just like unlucky enough to be at the wrong place in the wrong time. So Maranzano has this dude call halfway paid to kill Luciano and he calls Luciano up to his office building to have a conversation and the plan is for Luciano to walk into the office, them to have a short meeting. Kyle would come up to the office waiting outside. He would come up and kill Luciano in Maranzano's office. Maranzano had an office in the Grand Central Station building so the meeting was there and Luciano was supposed to be there. On September 10th, 1931, members of Murder Inc., including Samuel Levine, Bo Weinberg, and Bugsy Siegel went to Maranzano's office just as police officers. Tommy Lucchese came with them. He's the only Italian mafioso to join the group. They pretended to be carrying out a raid of the office in order to get to Maranzano's office. When they finally made their way to Maranzano's office, they shot and stabbed Maranzano to death. As they were leaving the building, they passed Vincent Call, who was on his way up to kill Luciano. He obviously never got paid that second 25k, but at least he walked away with the first 25k, never had to pay it back, never had to do anything for it. Now that both Masseria and Maranzano were dead, there's no official party that is controlling the mafia. The Young Turks kind of assumed control and decided to restructure the American mafia. The restructuring would turn the mafia into a corporation-like organization instead of the old way where one man would be in control of the entire organization or be the capo de tutti capi, boss of all bosses. It was broken down into a committee. Maranzano had already been in the process of splitting up this large organization into five factions. He already had all of these plans laid out and that would eventually evolve into the five families of New York that we know today. This is also where the structure of the mafia came from with like the boss, the underboss, the capos, soldiers, consigliere, associates, all of that. Maranzano developed these positions because he had this weird obsession with the Roman Empire and that's the way that the Roman Empire had been built. So he wanted to build the American mafia just like that. He also wanted to be the capo de tutti capi, the boss of bosses, acting as like a director of the American mafia. And his thought was that there would be five families, there would be a boss of each of the five families, he would be a boss of one of the families himself, and all of the other bosses would come and report to him. He does make it clear though that although he is not banning business 
has relationships with non-Italians, they can only raise to the rank of associate and they can't ever actually be a part of the organization. And pretty much what he's saying is they can't become made members. And in order to raise through the ranks to become a capo, a lieutenant, whatever, he, you would have to be a made member. And that would require you to be 100% Italian. Maranzano's plan is also where the name La Cosa Nostra came from, which is what he planned to name the group of the five families in New York, and is also what the mafia was called back in Italy. Maranzano had his plans already laid out and in the works, having the five families headed by Luciano, Profaci, Gagliano, Vincent Mangano, and himself. He laid these plans out at a meeting in Wappinger Falls, New York. Luciano then goes and reaches out to kind of like everybody in the mafia and lets them know that he's going to create the commission, who is a governing body that includes the bosses of each of the five families, and they are going to be there to work out any issues between the families, and it keeps everybody on his side because he continues to say that he's not recommending himself at, for the position of Capo de Tutti Capi. He's sticking with his original moral that this position should not exist, there should not be a boss of all bosses, and the ruling entity of the commission should be the only governing body within the American Mafia. After Maranzano and Masaria were killed, there was a purge of the Mustache Peets, or like the Old World members, on a night that would come to be known as the Night of the Sicilian Vespers, which historically was thought to have taken place all in one night, but it was actually a two-part operation, and kinda, you saw killings happening months later, so it was not all in one night. They orchestrated this attack for two reasons. The first was that they didn't want the older generation to come after them for the murders of Masseria and Maranzano. The second was that they wanted to get the old world thinking completely out of the mafia. They wanted it 100% nixed, and they just wanted to revolutionize, start fresh, and begin from absolute scratch. So they had to get rid of all of the mustache peats to make this happen. The Night of the Sicilian Vespers is actually a term that was borrowed from an event that happened in 1282 in Sicily. This was like a mass slaughter in Sicily because a Frenchman was having an affair with a Sicilian man's wife and the Sicilian killed the Frenchman and the Sicilians kind of, they all got together and just started killing everybody that was living in Sicily that was from France. I don't know why there was such a huge immigrant population of French people in Sicily, but there was and a lot of people ended up dying. Since they didn't really keep that good of records in Luciano's time, we don't really know exactly how many people were killed or who was killed. Most of what happened on the night of Maranzano's murder or the night of the Sicilian Vespers, it's kind of a myth. It's like a Hollywood trope that, you know, like a hundred people were murdered in various ways across America. It didn't really happen that way. Whenever any kind of organized crime expert researches actual records, they call bullshit every single time. They say that the numbers are absolutely way less than what Hollywood claims or even what the prosecutor the ADA had claimed when he came out and said 40 people were killed. Crime experts say that even that was a, a huge exaggeration and that a lot of the killings didn't happen at all and some of them did happen but they attributed it to the night of the Sicilian Vespers and it really didn't have anything to do with it. It was just a happy coincidence. In the Valachi Papers, a book that was written based on the testimony given by Joe Valachi, it claimed that Maranzano's murder was part of an intricate, painstakingly executed mass extermination engineered by Charles Lucky Luciano, where 40 Cosa Nostra leaders allied with Maranzano were slain all across the country. So we really don't know for certain either way, whether it did happen or it didn't happen, 
how many people died. We don't know. But what we do know is that a lot of people exaggerated it either way. And there's also been a lot of people that have said that Joe Valachi was very low ranking and didn't really know much. He came out and confirmed a lot of things in open court, such as he was the first person to ever admit that the commission existed. But he came out and said a lot of things just to get himself out of prison. And he really didn't know very many things even for certain. Like he he had never come across the commission. He just knew that it existed. He was just like some soldier that ended up flipping. The owner of Nueva Villa Tomorrow, the restaurant where Joe Masseria was killed, was Gerardo Scarpato. Luciano knew that all the dudes who were still loyal to Masseria wanted to kill this guy. They were pissed because Scarpato had like conveniently gone missing the night that the murder had happened for against Masseria. I think they had a lot of anger at a lot of different people, but really like what can they do? Masseria is dead, Maranzano's dead, and a lot of people running the show are the guys that killed them. Who are they going to turn their anger on? Oh yeah, the owner of the restaurant that wasn't around to stop the five guys that came in to kill Masseria. Yeah, that's that's exactly who we need to be angry at. Luciano had Scarpato killed as a sign of good faith, pretty much letting these guys know that he wants to make peace and has an interest in a good relationship with them. He doesn't want to kill them all. He wants a very good relationship going forward. Joseph Siragusa, the leader of the Pittsburgh crime family, was killed. Meyer Shapiro, who controlled bootlegging, gambling, prostitution, all of that on the east side, was killed by Abe Kid Twist Rells and Martin Bugsy Goldstein. A year later, his brother Willie Shapiro was killed by the same people by being buried alive, which is just my absolute worst fear. I literally, when I was a kid, I used to stay awake and think about like, what if I ever get buried to death alive? Like, this is my worst fear. Oh my god, no, 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 no. Just no, I don't like it. Joe Ardizone, the head of the Los Angeles crime family, disappeared and was presumed murdered. So the pretty much the gist of it is they went around and took out the top ranking members that could even like possibly be mistaken for a mustache piece. Luciano made it clear that he didn't agree with all of these killings. He hated the mass killings that were happening. He was really against it, but he justified it as saying like, the Night of the Sicilian Vespers was the last act that needed to be carried out. And once this one one act was done and the entire older generation was killed off, peace would ascend upon the world. This is the end of my talk on the Castello Marisi War, so this is the time I'm gonna put on uh, the video earlier. So if people fast forwarded, this is the end and we'll start moving on to other topics. Luciano's family controlled criminal rackets, including illegal gambling, extortion, bootlegging, loan sharking, drug trafficking, what you would expect to see out of the mafia. Luciano was also the first mafioso to get involved in like legit legitimate industries. He became a really large presence in the labor union activities, and he controlled Manhattan waterfront, he controlled garbage, construction, garment district business, and trucking, teamsters, everything. He was in all facets of all industries. While Luciano threw away Maranzano's idea of having a capo di tutti capi, he did hold on to a lot of the structure that Maranzano had built. The five families stayed in place as he had planned, and the rank structure had carried out through 
the families. And he also enforced the idea that while gangsters of other races could be associates, they could not be a part of the actual organization. He put into place the ability to become a made man if you were fully Sicilian. This would later evolve into all of Italy. And nowadays, I'm pretty sure you don't even have to be fully Italian because something that they were running into in present day was a lot of mafia guys were marrying these girls that were not Italian, having kids, and then their kids wanted to be in the life. So nowadays, I'm pretty sure you just have to be Italian on your father's side. So if your father's Italian, you're good to go. You could be in the mafia. Luciano put his closest associates in like really high positions within the family as made men. In the Luciano family, Lucky was the boss. His underboss was Genovese and Castello was his consigliere. Adonis, Michael Trigger, Mike Coppola, Anthony Strollo, Willie Moretti, and Anthony Carfano were all capos. Bugsy Siegel and Meyer Lansky were top associates to the family since they didn't come from Italian descent, they were Jewish, but they were the absolute top of the top when it came to associates. Up until this point, he had established that there would not be an individual mafia boss, but at this point, this is where the commission gets established. At the commission, the representatives of the five families of New York, the Buffalo family, the Chicago outfit, they're all represented, and later the families of the Philadelphia and Detroit bosses were added, and smaller families would be formally represented by a commission family. Pretty much what this did is like, there's the five families in New York, and then other cities have one family. So you got five families within New York, and then a Jersey family, a Connecticut family, you know, any other states where there's families, Chicago, New Orleans, anywhere like that, that's all, they're all one family, not multiple in that location. Galina Orlova, she was born of Russian-French heritage in Petrograd, Russia. Her mother, Antonia, fled Bolsheviks when she was a toddler, settling into Constantinople, Turkey, where she began to professionally dance. When she was 16 years old, she boarded the SS Sania and landed in Rhode Island. She soon went to New York, and that's where she met Earl Carroll, a Broadway producer. She had a six-month work visa, but she ended up marrying Ed Finn, an usher at the movie theater that she was working at. Although the marriage only lasted literally 48 hours before it was annulled, she was now allowed to stay in the United States and was now a United States citizen. She became well-known on Broadway as Gay All Over. Gay Orlova. Gay All Over. Got it. At the end of 1934, she traveled to Palm Island, Florida to perform in Carol's show that had recently opened there, and this is where she met Lucky Luciano. When spring came, Luciano left Florida and went back to New York City. Gay eventually ended up leaving Florida and went to New York and was reunited with Luciano. They formed a pretty strong relationship and continued to build it until 1935 when Lucky left Manhattan when Arthur Dutch Schultz Flegenheimer was murdered. She cried to reporters that she hadn't seen him in weeks and she had no idea why the public was saying such nasty things about him because he was such a dear. With Luciano gone, Gay didn't want to stay in New York anymore, so she went back to Florida. And she went back to Florida not knowing that that is actually where Luciano was and she ended up reunifying with him. She said she had no idea that he was there, but she was ecstatic when he was and they picked up right where they left off in New York. In the early 1930s, the Luciano family started to move into a new business 
business venture, which was prostitution. Herbert H. Lemon, governor of New York, appointed Thomas Dewey, along with his ADA Eunice Carter, she was a female, I don't know why it sounds like a male name to me, but female type, as a special prosecutor to combat organized crime in New York City. There had been a lot of prostitutes that were arrested, and she connected all of these prostitutes that were being arrested to Luciano when a large number of them had started to show up with the same bondsmen and the same attorneys who worked for your boy Luciano. She led a raid of 200 brothels in Manhattan and Brooklyn and arrested 100 women and 10 men. While the prostitutes and the madams were typically arrested and immediately released, these women were being held and brought to court, and they were each given a $10,000 bail, which absolutely none of them could afford to pay. Carter convinced multiple women to testify against Luciano, and if they did testify against him, it would avoid a heftier jail sentence for them. Luciano was implicated as the ringleader of the prostitution ring by three prostitutes. Many more implicated him as being in connection to the ring, but they couldn't implicate him as actually being the leader. More than likely, a lot of these implications were gotten to because they knew that if they didn't say what the DA wanted them to say, they were going to be stuck in jail for a really long time awaiting their trial. And then even after that, they would get a really long jail sentence, so they were just willing to say whatever the hell the DA wanted them to say. A lot of people nowadays kind of don't think that Luciano was involved in this prostitution ring at all. Luciano was made aware that he was going to be arrested for his involvement in the prostitution ring, so he fled to Hot Springs, Arkansas. In probably the most unlucky turn of events ever, there was a detective that was on a different assignment at that location, and he saw Luciano and gave Dewey a call and was like, hey, your boy Luciano's here. And Dewey came to Hot Springs, Arkansas and arrested Luciano. Luciano was arrested in Hot Springs, Arkansas on April 3rd, 1936. Luciano and his accomplices were indicted on 62 counts of compulsory prostitution. His lawyers actually fought pretty hard to prevent him from being extradited to New York. But on April 16th, he was transported back to New York for trial, and he was held without bail there. Dewey led the prosecution in which he accused Luciano of being involved in a massive prostitution ring known as The Combination. He pointed out that his taxes claimed an income of only $22,000 a year, and he questioned his relationships with well-known mafia associates on the stand. On June 7th, 1936, he was found guilty of all charges and convicted of 62 counts of compulsory prostitution. On June 18th, he was sentenced to 30 to 50 years in prison. When crime experts and historians look back at the trial, they claim that the evidence against him was astonishingly thin and that Luciano was more than likely not involved in the racket at all. This goes back to what I've been saying. If cops want to take you down, they will take you down. A lot of times you'll hear the person went down for the one crime they didn't commit, they literally do not care if you committed the crime. They care if they can get you into prison. So stay off cops' radar. When Luciano was arrested by Dewey, Gay is seen all over the papers saying, I don't believe any of these charges, especially the one about compulsory something or other. It doesn't sound nice. Not like lucky at all. Compulsory something or other was like her way of saying prostitution. Gay held a press conference to let her objections be known. 
She said that Charlie was just like any other fellow. He was nice, she said. Luciano was sentenced to 30 to 50 years in prison, and because of that, Gay left America and she went to Paris. When Hitler and Stalin signed the Brotherhood Pact in 1939, Gay was arrested as a possible Russian spy, but she wasn't really held long. They couldn't really get anything on her, so she was let go. When Hitler's army took over France in 1941, Gay was picked up by the Nazis, but she escaped detention again. Now, Luciano is sentenced to 30 to 50 years. Obviously, that's the end of the story, right? He's going to rot away in prison, and there can't be any more to the story. What, what else could possibly be said? How wrong you are, my dear friend. Luciano remained the boss of the family while Genovese was out there as the acting boss. But Genovese actually ended up leaving the country and fleeing to Naples to avoid a murder indictment. So his consigliere, Frank Costello, was appointed as the acting boss while Luciano was in prison. He was imprisoned at Sing Sing Correctional Facility in Ossining, New York. But later that year, he was moved to Clinton Correctional Facility in Danamora, which was a lot further away from New York City. Although Clinton was a lot further away from his family, his associates, he lived the absolute high life at Clinton. He had, like, specifically made meals delivered to him. He was having a church built for him. Like, things were great at this new place. He continued his appeals process until 1938, when the U.S. Supreme Court refused to review his case. At this point, Luciano stepped down from the family. He stepped down as the boss, and he had Costello formally replace him as the boss of the family. Now, 1942 rolls around, and tensions are at an all-time high. World War II is raging, and the Office of Naval Intelligence were worried about a lot of things that were outside of their control. They were worried that agents of the Axis forces were entering the United States through the New York waterfront. They were worried about sabotage within these facilities on the waterfront, and they were worried about interruption in activities due to the war effort. So pretty much, they're worried that spies are going to get in, and they're worried that a strike is going to put the New York waterfront down, which would really have an impact on World War II. The thing that pushed the U.S. over the edge and made them start looking to do whatever the hell they could was the sinking of the SS Normandy. The SS Normandy was a passenger ship that was going to transport troops to the war, but it caught on fire in the New York Harbor. It was suspected to be done by German spies at the time, and somebody had even said that it was Anastasia's brother that had organized the attack on the boat. But nowadays it's pretty clear that it was probably an accidental fire. It probably wasn't a German or Anastasia's brother or anybody. It probably just happened. Either way, at the time, the government is thinking that it's German spies. So they start freaking out and they turn to the mafia to help them. Because they know that the mafia is pretty much controlling the entire New York waterfront. The prosecutor of Luciano's case, Thomas Dewey, is now governor of New York, and he proposed a mutually beneficial relationship with Luciano, who he knew would be able to help. They struck a deal where Luciano's sentence would be commuted if he helped, which actually made Luciano a pretty big influence in World War II even though Italy, the country that he hailed from, was an Axis power. The collaboration between the Navy and the Mafia was known as Operation Underworld. He was transferred to Great Meadow Correctional Facility in Comstock, New York, which was a lot closer to New York City, and it was a lot easier for him to issue orders to his family to help the government. Luciano promised the complete assistance from the Mafia in providing intelligence to the Navy, 
and Anastasia promised that there would be no dock worker strikes during the war. He provided the U.S. military with contacts in the Sicilian Mafia, and they provided this at the perfect time because it was right before the Allied invasion of Sicily. He directs the entire Mafia to get to the docks and thwart any and all attacks that are going to come in from Axis powers, and he also directs them to make sure that no spies, no plants or anything like that is going to come in from the Axis powers. To my knowledge, there was never an attack that they had to fight, but the fact that they were there was actually huge because it allowed the Navy to go off and do other things and do what they needed to do, and they knew that the docks were secure because the Mafia was watching them. He stayed true to his word, and he put a stop to all strikes on the docks. The dock workers pretty regularly went on strike, which posed a huge threat to World War II and the efforts to get supplies and troops over to Germany to fight. But Anastasia came in and pretty much, we all know how Anastasia was, so uh, he made sure there was no strikes. At the time, Italy was an Axis power fighting alongside Germany and Japan. The government asked Luciano to pull some strings and... They asked him to, like, set up a relationship between Italy and the United States. Luciano set up a meeting between the U.S. government and the Sicilian contacts that he had. Those Sicilian contacts helped America with information and logistical support that they needed. They got in good with the heads of the families that had been ruling those parts of Sicily. The Mafia hated the dude that was running the country at the time, Benito Mussolini. Mussolini came down really hard on the Mafia in Italy, and he pretty much would send prefects to Sicily to torture and kill mafiosi and their family to kind of force them into submission. And he ignored or changed any laws that limited his power to do so. Mussolini joined World War II and formed a pact with Germany and Japan, making them an official Axis power fighting against the United States, France, China, Great Britain, and the Soviet Union. The Sicilian Mafia connections drew up pictures and took photographs of the Sicilian coastline and harbors which allowed the United States to plan an attack by sea because they weren't just, you know, blindfolded coming in. The Sicilian contacts fought right alongside the United States against Germans and Italian police and armies. Normally, when a country invades another country, one of the biggest oppositions is the general populace. The, the people will attack and fight the soldiers of the other country for their country. They'll stick up for their country. But since the Sicilian Mafia still had a pretty tight hold on running Sicily, and since Mussolini had already messed with them, like, pretty hardcore, they made sure that the general public left the United States alone, and the only thing that the U.S. had to fight was the opposing armies, not the general public, which gave them a huge leg up and allowed them to ultimately be successful. The U.S. invaded Italy in the summer of 1943, and they spent 38 days fighting off the Axis powers to get them out of Sicily. They were eventually successful, and they got every single Axis power out of Sicily, and they took over. The public of Italy started to turn against Mussolini, and they were no longer supporting this war at all. The Grand Council of Italy voted Mussolini out of office after he met with King Vittorio Emanuele, 
who was stating that the war was already lost on July 25th, 1943. King Vittorio Emanuele was the king of Italy from July 29th, 1900 until he abdicated the throne on May 9th, 1946. Emanuele fought against Mussolini. He continued to resist the Italian entry into the war until June of 1940, when the king kind of just like relented and he was like, all right, enough, I'm done, I'm done fighting you. Go ahead, do what you gotta do. You wanna fight this war? Go right ahead, I don't care. This granted Mussolini the power to enter and conduct the war. Emanuele's son, Umberto, took over the throne and he would eventually be the last king of Italy. The Italian government proposed a referendum to abolish the monarchy and they were successful when voters chose to replace the monarchy with a republic. General Pietro Badoglio took over as the prime minister of Italy. On September 3rd, 1943, Italy reached an armistice, and on October 13th, 1943, the government of Italy declared war on its former Axis partner Germany and joined the battle on the side of the Allies. Luciano, having set up the contact between the two countries, even offered to go to Sicily and help with the war effort. They didn't allow him to since, like, he was in jail and... He was currently serving this 30 to 50 year sentence and they weren't confident he wouldn't just like land and take off. So all of this stuff that he got done, he got it done from a jail cell. The effort to get all the Axis powers out of Sicily was called Operation Husky. And Luciano was so integral in this invasion of Italy that he was considered for a Medal of Honor from his prison cell, which is pretty dope. The U.S. was really scared that there would be Mussolini sympathizers on the port because the U.S. was at war with Italy and a large majority of the dock workers were Italian immigrants. Luciano agreed to have his men keep veneer out for anyone voicing, like, pro-fascist nonsense. It was never confirmed what they planned to do if they ever did kind of fall upon somebody that was spouting this, but it's pretty obvious, like, what the mafia would do with somebody that they didn't want around. Like, what do, what do you think they're going to do? There's a whole lot of background that goes on into, like, why Italy switched sides and declared war on the Axis power that they used to be a part of. But a large part of that is how swiftly the U.S. was able to overtake Italy in Operation Husky, which was coordinated, planned, and pretty much successful because of Luciano. When the war was over, Luciano petitioned for executive clemency, saying that his cooperation in both Operation Underworld and Operation Husky warranted his immediate freedom. On January 3rd, 1946, Luciano's sentence was commuted by Dewey on the condition that he be immediately deported to Italy. So, yeah, you can be free, but you better get the fuck out of here. On February 9th, 1946, so, I mean, a little bit over a month after he had been given his freedom, the night before his departure from the United States, Luciano shared a spaghetti dinner with Anastasia and five other guests as, like, a farewell. It seems like it was, like, a really sad moment. The trip to Italy took 17 days, and when he arrived, reporters were there waiting on him. When Luciano was released from prison only nine and a half years after being sentenced and deported to Italy, Gay was overjoyed. She was over the friggin' moon, super psyched that he got out of jail. After he had been in Italy for only three months, she sought permission to cross the Alps to get to him, and her request was refused. In October of 1946, Luciano secretly moved to Havana, Cuba. He did this so that he could be closer to the United States and stay involved with the American Mafia operations. 
and eventually he wanted to return home. Lansky was already established in Cuba, and he had the ability to congregate people there to meet with Luciano. In 1946, Lansky called a meeting of the commission in Havana that December, which would come to be known as the Havana Conference. The representatives of the mafia, the commission, the important guys that all went to the Havana Conference, they said that they were going to attend a Frank Sinatra concert, but it was really a commission meeting that Luciano would be there for. They discussed three topics, the heroin trade, Cuban gambling, and the hotel of Bugsy Seagulls that was absolutely failing. Earlier that year, Genovese returned to the United States to stand trial for the murder charge that he was in Naples running away from, but that case was dismissed, so he just stayed in New York and he attended the Havana Conference as well. Genovese spent a pretty good chunk of time that he was there trying to convince Luciano to take on the role of Capu di Tutti Capi and let him run the show while Luciano was living in Cuba. And Luciano did not trust Genovese by this time. He's quoted as saying, There is no boss of bosses. I turned it down in front of everybody. If I ever change my mind, I will take the title. But it won't be up to you. Right now, you work for me and I ain't in the mood to retire. Don't you ever let me hear this again or I'll lose my temper. Luciano was not secretive about being in Cuba. He had been publicly hanging out with Sinatra, visiting a lot of nightclubs, posing for pictures for the media, and the United States eventually learned that he was there. When they figured it out, they threatened Cuba, and they pretty much told Cuba that they were going to put sanctions in place so that the U.S. would not send any prescription drugs to Cuba. Cuba relied very heavily on United States narcotic prescription drugs, so... So two days later, the Cuban government detained Luciano and they put him on a Turkish freighter back to Italy. Another thing that was discussed at the Havana conference was what was going to be done about Bugsy Siegel. Bugsy, or Ben as his friends called him, was married to Virginia Hill. Virginia had been involved in the mafia for a really long time and she had been known as the queen of the mob. I was honestly planning on doing all four redo videos in a row. The first four videos that I did, I was going to redo them in a row. But I fell upon this magnificent woman, and I started reading about her, and she's a legend, so I decided to put Capone on hold next week, and I'm going to do an episode on Virginia Hill. So I don't want to put too much information about her on here, but she she's epic. I can't wait. I'm so excited to research her. Hill and Siegel went to Las Vegas together and opened a hotel casino with the Mafia's money. This hotel was called the Flamingo, and it seemed like it was doomed from the absolute start. They had planned this big opening, and it opened disastrously. It was during a winter rainstorm, something that never, ever happened. Like, it did not rain during the winter in Las Vegas, and for some reason, it had been raining. So when it opened, it was just... Nobody came. This was one of those situations where you're like, it's a sign, it's a sign. Like, that, you know... If you're if you get a flat tire on your way somewhere, you're like, it's a sign I shouldn't do this. This is what's going on here. This opening is definitely a sign that things are not going to be good for this hotel. And they weren't. The hotel was an absolute disaster. It closed down and opened again and closed and opened. It just it was always kind of going back and forth. 
It opened again as the fabulous Flamingo, and Meyer Lansky stepped in and paid back anybody who wanted out of the investment. By May of 1947, the hotel had reopened and actually did pretty well. It earned $10 million in its first four weeks of being open. People kind of theorized that the fate of Siegel was discussed at the Havana conference, but we're going to go over that all later because I have a feeling that my Virginia Hill video is going to turn into Virginia Hill feet Bugsy Siegel. I'm so psyched about it, but I, again, I don't want to go into too much information here about it because that's going to be the next video that I record. So watch out for it. It's going to be interesting. It's sad, like, I've only done redos for the last two weeks, but I've actually really missed learning new things about new people. Like, I, I just brushed up on some information about Luciano, so I didn't put the same exact information as I did the first time around. But, like, I didn't really do too much research. I already know about Luciano, and I just didn't want it to be the same video, like, with a better camera angle. But when I fell upon Virginia Hill, who I totally thought Virginia Hill was a Hollywood actress before this, um, but when I fell upon her and started reading up on her, I was like, yeah, fuck Capone, like... He sucks anyway, he can wait, Virginia Hill is it, she's going next. As soon as Luciano returned to Italy, he was immediately arrested. Like, the moment he touched ground, he was arrested. He was warned to stay out of trouble, and he was also told that he would be under strict police scrutiny for the rest of his life. In Italy, Luciano had many run-ins with the law. In 1949, he was arrested in Rome for his involvement in shipping heroin and other narcotics to New York. He was released without any charges being filed, but he had spent a week in jail. In 1951, he was brought in on suspicion of smuggling cash and a car into Italy. He was again released without any charges being filed, but he had again spent 20 hours in interrogation. So they just kept coming after him and kept screwing with him, but they couldn't ever actually press charges. In 1952, the U.S. and Canadian law enforcement officials complained about Luciano's ability to kind of like travel the world and do whatever the hell he wanted, and the Italian courts confiscated his passport. In 1954, he was essentially put on house arrest. He had a requirement to report to police every single Sunday. He was required to not travel outside of Naples without permission, and he was given a curfew that he had to adhere to. They said that the reason for this was for his involvement in narcotics trade, even though they had never actually charged him with anything. This is Italy, though. I mean, this is the place that had charged Amanda Knox with murder, like, three times. Like, she was found not guilty many times and they just kept coming at her so and this is also the place that Mussolini sent people to torture and kill mafia guys' kids and wives and everything so like they don't really have a system of anything telling them like hey you can't do this while Luciano was stuck in Italy and he's under police scrutiny his frenemy Genovese was back in America and he's making moves in 1957, him and Carlo Gambino, the underboss of the Anastasia family, attacked Frank Costello, who was the acting boss for the Luciano family. Luciano had taken back control of his family when he got out of prison, but they needed somebody in America to be the acting boss, and that was Frank Costello. So Genovese and Carlo Gambino going after Frank Costello was an attack on Luciano as well. Genovese ordered Vincent the Chin Gigante to execute Costello. Gigante grabbed Costello as he was exiting his apartment, and he shot him in the head. He's apparently a really bad shot, though, because he was at point-blank range, and he 
barely grazed Costello's head, and Costello lived. Costello didn't cooperate with police, obviously, but since it was such a public attack, the police arrested Gigante for attempted murder. He was acquitted, and he thanked Costello after the verdict was read. Costello had no choice, and he just kind of didn't want to deal with this fighting anymore, so he handed over leadership to Genovese, and Luciano couldn't do anything to stop it. He's, he's in Italy, he can't go to America, so he just has to sit around and watch this usurper, Genovese, come in and just take over his family. On October 25th, 1957, Genovese and Gambino arranged the murder of Albert Anastasia, one of Luciano's closest allies, in a barbershop while he was having a haircut and shave. Genovese called a meeting of the commission to be held in Appalachian, New York. I know there's like a hot topic debate on how to pronounce Appalachian or Appalachian or Appalachian. I don't know. I'm from New York. I pronounce it Appalachia. Appalachian Mountains. I don't do the Appalachia. No. Appalachian. Appalachian Mountains. That's how I say it. Deal with it. I don't know. I don't know what to tell you. That's how I'm going to say it. Things went horribly, horribly wrong at this meeting in Appalachian, New York, and everybody ended up getting arrested at this meeting. It became a really big deal because everybody that was arrested was kind of like outed to the press as bosses in the mafia or just like members of the mafia. And this is before a time that people liked the mafia. You know, nowadays they kind of like idolize the mafia. They they look at them as like good people, you know, after the Godfather and Goodfellas, like they kind of made, they kind of romanticized the mafia. But before that, People did not like the Mafia, so when these guys were arrested at the meeting in Appalachian and they were outed to the world as being part of the Mafia, it was a really bad thing for them. Igea Lissoni was born in Milan, Italy on December 28, 1920. She grew up in a rich family and at a young age, her parents, Giovanni Lissoni and Ida Paghi, noticed that she had a really strong love for dance and they enrolled her into ballet. She met Lucky Luciano while she was dancing at a club in Rome. Lucky would say that the day that he met her was the most important day of his life. He said that it was love at first sight for him. But when the owner of the club brought Igea over to meet Lucky after her set, she got up and walked away. She was not interested. She was, eh. Her family was rich. She's from Milan, which compared to someone from Sicily, to Italians, it meant like, you know, she's on the top of the skyscraper and he's in the basement. Yes, that's a direct quote from Lucky. But being an infamous mafia boss women kind of tended to chase Luciano around. So he actually really enjoyed this chase of her not wanting him. It was so rare to come across a girl that he wanted that didn't want him back. So he actually really enjoyed this. She finally gave in and they began to date. She moved in with him at the Excelsior Hotel, but she requested that they move and they relocated to an apartment in Parioli, Rome. I might be pronouncing that wrong. Agia's parents were furious to find out that she had a relationship with this mobster that was like famous for being a mafia member and a criminal. In 1949, Luciano was arrested and held at the Regina Coli prison in Rome for his complicity in the smuggling of narcotics. Igea camped outside the prison the entire time that he was detained and she only left to visit public officials asking for his release. So she was a real one. She was there. She was 
down for the ride. When he was released nine days later, she was waiting outside the prison for him, along with a horde of reporters. The Italian newspapers were full of photos of the two embracing that afternoon. The Italian Ministry of the Interior at La Guardia di Finanzia by U.S. authorities declared him a danger to the state. He was forced to return to his hometown of Lacara Fridi, and this is when he starts being under a curfew and being watched very strongly by police. He's not allowed to leave this town without permission, and he's living at a hotel, and Igea came along. They began to travel Italy together, but when she would like go see a ballet, he would go to a racetrack or the movies. Luciano said she would get very angry with me when I told her that I would do anything for her, except see a lot of fairies jump around in tights with their balls showing. <laughs> he had an eloquent way with words, you can tell. Luciano loved Igea. He loved her so much, in fact, that like when she requested that he stop, he absolutely gave up his life of crime. He bought a farm in Santa Marinella, and he worked with some of his cousins there. He also bought a home appliance store, but that closed down pretty quickly. At the end of 1957, Igea started to notice that she had persistent fatigue and that there were small lumps in her left breast, which were painful to the touch. She went and saw a doctor who recommended an exploratory surgery. She didn't have the surgery. She got too scared. She was like, absolutely not. You're not cutting me open. And she was like, you know what? I'll just wait and see. I'll wait. I'll watch. I'll see what the symptoms are. And I'll just see how I feel. It turned out to be breast cancer and her left breast was removed. While she was in recovery, she discovered more lumps in her right breast and they removed that one as well. Although they now informed her that there really wasn't anything else that they could do. Her health started deteriorating rapidly. Although they were few and far between, whenever she would have moments where the pain was not so bad that she could speak, she would tell Luciano to go out and not sit by her bed all the time, but he wouldn't listen and just stayed there. She wanted him to go live his life, but he was like, nah, absolutely not. I'm right here and I am not moving. In September of 1958, Igea fell into a coma. In her last days of life, Luciano rarely left her bedside and he just sat beside her, watching her intently for hours and hours on end. He didn't eat, he didn't sleep. The lines in his face grew deeper every day. People around him started to notice that he was starting to deteriorate. And Igea Lissoni died on September 27th, 1958 at 37 years old. She was a baby. Like, that's so young to die of breast cancer. Luciano gave all of her belongings to her sister Daria and fell into a deep depression. He didn't leave the house for 11 weeks, even with friends coming and trying to coax him out of the house. Luciano later started to date Adriana Rizzo four months after Igea passed away. He never mentioned gay or wanting to reunite with her again. And he kind of let Adriana Rizzo know like, Igea was the love of my life. I'm not gonna fall in love with you. We're not gonna have a life together, but I need some companionship. So she knew that it was never gonna be, you know, love at first sight, this romantic story. It was just 
it was what it was. They weren't ever going to get married, and his heart always belonged to Igea, but they got along well, and they stayed together for a while. As of 1954, Gay was still present in Paris, attempting to be reunited with Luciano, and Luciano continued to ignore her and say no, he didn't want to reunite. On January 26, 1962, Luciano planned to go to Naples International Airport to meet with American movie producer Martin Gosh. He went to the Naples International Airport to discuss a movie that was going to be based on his life. He spent a really long time denying any interviews or anything, any meetings, any anything with any kind of producers. He didn't want anything to do with any interviews about his life or anything like that. But at this point, Igea had passed away. He wasn't really worried about her finding out about the things that he had done. And he really didn't have anything left to lose at this point. The meeting with Gosh went great. Everything went really well. And he told his whole life story to Gosh. Right after the meeting, he started to have chest pains. Charles Lucky Luciano had a heart attack and died at the Naples International Airport. He didn't know it, but the Italian drug agents had followed him to the airport and were planning to arrest him as soon as his meeting was over and they were arresting him on drug smuggling charges. Three days later, a service was held in Naples where three 300 people gathered and a horse-drawn black hearse took his body through the streets of Naples. Back in America, his relatives fought the U.S. government to have his body flown back to the U.S. so that he could be buried in America. In a really surprising turn, they actually won and Luciano's body was flown to America for a service and burial. He was buried at St. John Cemetery in Middle Village, Queens. Luciano was much more well-known and liked in America because he grew up there. It's where he spent most of his life. While only 300 people went to his service in Italy, around 2,000 people attended his service in America. Gambino gave his eulogy, which absolutely irritates me. Gambino conspired to kill two of Luciano's best friends, Frank Costello and Albert Anastasia. I can only imagine the toll that those deaths took on Lucky, and I don't think Gambino would be his first choice for who would give his eulogy. I just don't. In 1998, Time Magazine called Charles Lucky Luciano a criminal mastermind. They put him in the top 20 most influential builders and titans of the 20th century. I talked about this on the first video that I did about Luciano, and I'm gonna reiterate it here because I fully believe this to be the truth. There's a play that, if you're from America, you have 100% heard about. There's nobody in America that has not heard about this play. Romeo and Juliet. Spoiler alert coming at the end of Romeo and Juliet. Juliet takes a drug and it stops her heart from beating or it slows it down so much that she could easily be mistaken for being dead. She did this because she was supposed to marry this dude Paris and she didn't want to. She wanted to marry Romeo, but they were from warring families and blah, 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 you know. But this drug works so well that Romeo believes that Juliet is dead and he kills himself by her side. Juliet wakes up from the drug that stopped her heart for like 24 hours and she sees Romeo is dead. She cries. She ends up killing herself. The whole story is a tragic love story of two 16-year-olds that were just like super melodramatic. The last line of the play is, for there never was a story of more woe than this of Juliet and her Romeo. Romeo and Juliet was written by Shakespeare and it was written somewhere between 1591 and 1596. People theorize that the drug used by Juliet is nightshade seeds of bell rush or the herb leopard's bane. 
Obviously, this story is based way before Luciano's time, and he had definitely heard it before. Wouldn't it be brilliant if Luciano did something along these lines and took a Juliet-like drug to convince the government that he was dead so that his body could be flown back to the United States and he could finally be back in the United States where he's wanted to be all along? I recorded this video a year ago. And I said that I had looked around and wasn't able to find anybody floating this theory ever. I looked it up again now, and still to this day, I am still not able to find one person proposing this theory, and I think that is absolutely wild. People will say that Tupac is alive and Elvis Presley is alive, but nobody has ever talked about the likely fact that Luciano is alive. I'm a pretty big conspiracy theory believer. I know that about myself. I understand that. And that makes me not so much of like a reliable source for these kind of things. But wouldn't it be absolutely perfect if he did this? How do we know Lucky Luciano actually died? What if he did live? What if he did know that the cops were there to arrest him? Are you really going to believe that somebody of Luciano's status didn't know that the cops were planning to arrest him? Like, that's lunacy. Of course he knew. What if he made one last act by giving an autobiography account to Gosh? If he had himself pronounced dead, it would get both the Italian and American governments off his back. It would get him back to the U.S. when they moved his body. And it would reinforce his name Lucky, that's for sure. If he lived through it, he could have lived in the underground. He could have had facial reconstruction surgery to look completely different. The rest of the world would think he's dead. And he could just keep running his family and operating within the mafia. And nobody would know. With the amount of money that he had, I'm sure that he had some doctor that would be willing to sign off that he was dead, that they put formaldehyde in his body, etc. Honestly, I'm not even sure if formaldehyde was used at this time. I know that that was kind of like a recent development, but they never did, and an empty casket was buried in Queens. He was young. He was only 64 years old. And we're to believe that the man that survived having his throat slit, having been stabbed 12 times, having his body dumped on a beach, he survived all of that. And a heart attack did him in? Really? Two minutes before he was supposed to be arrested by the cops? Really? As I said in my first video, I don't think that he's alive now. It's been way too long. He's definitely dead by now, but I definitely don't think that he died at Neville's International Airport. One thing that I had said was that there's a lot of rats in the Mafia, so many rats, and that it was very likely that if this was the case, some rat would have come forward and said, like, hey, Lucky Luciano didn't really die. But I do think that if he did pull all of this off, he probably had his face completely reconstructed, and for all we know, he could have been Paul Castellano. Like, we don't know anything. We know nothing. And I'm sure he wouldn't tell anybody so that if anybody ever rat, nobody would be able to tell on him. So I really truly believe that theory. I proposed it the first time. Nobody really talked about it, but I mean, that was like my second video. It was absolute trash. I'm deleting it off of everything. It wasn't great. So I don't know, maybe this time around I can get some people to like talk about this theory because I would love to have a conversation about it. Like what if he is, he lived? Again, I don't think he's alive now. It's too long. He's, I mean, he's not a friggin' vampire. But I don't think he died at 64 years old. So if you have any input on this, please 
talk to me. Let me know what you think, because I'm really interested in seeing what other people think about this. Anyways, Lucky Luciano has been portrayed in countless books, movies, plays, shows, everything. He laid the groundwork for an entire criminal organization, and eventually that organization would go on to net billions and billions of dollars in profit. His impact on World War II and America's ability to win that war invade Sicily and have Italy flip between an Axis and Allied power sets him up as not only a criminal mastermind, but a mastermind of war in general, both underground and above ground. This man is an absolute legend. He's literally the father of the American Mafia and probably one of the most important people to ever live. That's all I have on this one. Thanks so much for tuning in, especially if you made it all the way to the end of the episode. I told you at the beginning it was going to be a really long one, so if you're still here, I really appreciate you sticking around and thank you so much for hanging out, learning about Lucky Luciano, and spending some time with me. Please don't forget to like, share, subscribe, follow, do all the things. And I'll see you next week. Bye.